Before we begin, I should warn you that this episode contains conversation about sensitive topics, including suicide, which may be difficult for some listeners. If you feel uncomfortable with these subjects, please stop listening and pick another episode. Six weeks before sex reassignment surgery, I'm obliged to stop taking my hormones. I suddenly feel very differently about my forthcoming operation. I'd previously seen transition as a marathon. Surgery was like breaking the tape, but the race was won far earlier. Now I reconsider. Perhaps this is more like a difficult cup final after some hard previous rounds. Meet today's co-host, Juliet Jakes, writer and filmmaker. You just heard the very first lines of her 2015 book, Trans, a memoir, a moving and seminal book exploring transition, transgender politics and culture. Let's start by getting to know the writer. What advice would you give your 15-year-old self? I would advise my 15-year-old self to read more, to seek things out on the internet. I would advise my 15-year-old self also to actually use the internet, to use social media, to find other people like me uh, who might be able to help me work out the things I was trying to work out. And also just to relax a bit more, actually. You've got your whole life to work this stuff out. You don't need to work it out right now. Julia, I wanted to know if you would describe yourself as a feminist, because I know that is a particularly complicated term for trans people, trans women. Uh, yeah, that's that's a really interesting question, something I've wrestled with a lot, because, you know, there's a... I think it's it's on its way out, but it's on its way out very noisily and aggressively, you know, a strand of feminism that is explicitly trans-exclusionary. And that has made it very difficult for me in the past to want to call myself a feminist. I often say I'm not not a feminist, paraphrasing the philosopher Ernst Bloch, who said I'm not not a Marxist. In her work, Juliet writes about various subjects, literature, film, art, politics, gender, sexuality and football. Her writing has appeared in various publications, including the London Review of Books, New York Times and The Guardian, for whom she documented her gender reassignment in a series entitled A Transgender Journey. And she's all too aware that problems facing transgender people are far from sorted. I think the two biggest problems that trans people face today across the world are violence and access to healthcare. The murder rate for trans people, particularly trans women of colour, and particularly in the Global South, is very, very high, but people are often still excluded from jobs despite the protections that have been won in certain places. People are still shunned by friends and family and lovers, and yeah, still face a lot of abuse, harassment, and perhaps worse, on the street. My name is Juliet Jakes. I have unfinished business. As a curator at the British Library, I've spent the last few years working on an exhibition that's exploring the history of women's rights. Sadly, the exhibition is closed at the moment due to the pandemic, but we will reopen as soon as possible. In the meantime, we have this accompanying podcast... Throughout the series, inspired by themes and objects in the exhibition, I've been having some fascinating conversations about everything from cycling to domestic violence to beauty to pleasure. Today we're delving into the archives to learn about how trans people have been portrayed in the press in the past, and how legal representation has been fought for, and how lives have been transformed as a result. I'm talking about identity, language and visibility, 
because, as Juliet touched on, there's clearly a long way to go. The LGBT rights charity Stonewall estimate that there are around 600,000 trans and non-binary people in Britain today. Two in five trans young people have attempted suicide, and two in five trans people have had a hate crime committed against them in the last year. Which is why I wanted to make this episode. With Juliet, we're going to be finding out about trans lives in the past. We'll be talking to an academic who's made it her mission to unearth queer stories from the 20th century. I think that queer histories can also show us the kinds of alternative, positive histories that are kind of almost just sort of behind the door, really. You know, these female husbands, these masqueraders, you know, were quite powerful figures. They were eroticised, they were sexy. A groundbreaking lawmaker who changed lives for trans people in the early 2000s. And what we achieved anyway in 2004 was regarded widely as being the most advanced legal recognition legislation anywhere in the world at the time. And a writer making sure her voice is heard today. I took a whole load of books into rehab with me. <laughs> it was kind of like Donatella Versace at um, London Waterloo. I had like <laughs> so much luggage. But let's start by learning a bit more about Juliet. We're heading back to the 90s and her childhood. I think a lot of my perspective was formed by the fact that there was a law in place in the 1980s and 1990s when I was at a school called Section 28, which had been passed by the Margaret Thatcher government in 1988, and it banned the promotion of homosexuality, was the phrasing used. And they banned this in schools and in public bodies, so libraries, basically, in response to a moral panic in the 1980s in the wake of the AIDS epidemic. So I had to piece together not just a trans past, but a trans present for myself. Uh, there was very little at my school. I think we had one lesson on homosexuality in my secondary school, in one of the compulsory religious education lessons. We had one lesson on homosexuality where we were shown a video from about 1973 <laughs> about two boys who go camping together and the, uh, the RE teacher himself uh, was clearly very, very uncomfortable with having to present this material to us. Was this a story, was this a, a moral tale of warning or was it a... Like... I think it was trying, it was trying to be sympathetic. Right. I mean, it was showing like homophobia in a classroom right. in the 70s. Uh, it was a very strange, uh, <laughs> a very strange historical artefact. I'm not quite sure where they found it. But of course, you know, anyone at that point who wanted to know what homosexual was could have done, because by that time we did have the internet, very crude early internet. And I'd done a lot of work in my spare time looking up terms like transsexual and transvestite and transgender and trying to work out what they meant and whether they applied to me and whether there were any people out there like me. And of course, that was... That was a much better resource than anything I had in the town. It was kind of a lifesaver. And one way in which if you were a young person engaged with counterculture in the 90s, one way that you would find out about all sorts of interesting things that had happened in literature and film and politics would be through pop music would be through bands like the Manic Street Preachers or Stereo Lab, maybe, who would reference literature and film in their song titles, on their record covers, in their lyrics. Uh, I mean, I found out about Candy Darling through The Smiths. 
Candy Darling was an American actress and transgender icon. She starred in Andy Warhol's film Flesh and Women in Revolt. You know, the less said about Morrissey as a public figure now, the better. But, you know, the Smiths uh, were in some ways a gateway for me into a certain type of queer world. I mean, a very white queer world, obviously, but, you know, queer world. And so Candy Darling was on the cover of a Smiths single. Juliet went on to study at university and it was here that she started to become aware of a longer history of trans communities. She delved into the work of Magnus Hirschfeld, a German physician and sexologist who came to prominence in the late 1890s. Hirschfeld was an outspoken advocate for sexual minorities and he founded the Institute of Sexual Research in 1919. He had an immense archives and a library on sexuality and provided educational services and medical consultations. But being Jewish and gay, he was targeted by the Nazis, and in 1933, his institute was ransacked and its books burned. He was forced into exile in France, where he died in 1935. Juliet's studies really opened her eyes to his world. That really took me to the work that Hirschfeld did to separate the idea of transgender from the idea of homosexuality or bisexuality. I don't think he coined the word transvestite, but he started using it for people who wore the clothes of the opposite sex and had this inherent need or drive to do that and said that this should be treated as a thing in itself separate from sexuality. And and the discovery of this much longer history of trans than the sort of 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, is it something that you thought it must have always been? I just didn't have the evidence of it. Yeah, that was that was my feeling. And of course, you can go back further into history and find examples of cross-dressing going back to the Roman Empire. And of course, these are isolated individuals. They're usually people who were lucky enough to be in a position where cross-dressing wouldn't get them killed. You know, sometimes they were like people who were assigned female at birth who dressed as men in order to work or get into the army or whatever and were often discovered after they died that that was the case. But yeah, you know, this, I, I knew there would be this, this longer history. It just felt completely natural to me that as long as there were gender roles, there would be people who transcended them. My sense is that for many people, trans issues are very, very contemporary. They seem like they're very new. And I just wanted to get your reflections on that, I suppose, on what the problem of that is. I think you're right to say that there's a perception in society that this is a very, very new phenomenon. And I think that's partly to do with the way the internet and particularly social media makes everything about the present. It kind of flattens time in these, these weird ways, I think. But also there has been an exponential rise in trans visibility in mainstream media in the last 10 years. But that's because of the work that trans communities were doing to organise and to develop a culture and share a culture over the last hundred years or more, but particularly since the 1990s. And again, that I think is largely a function of the internet. Before the internet, the gender identity clinics often used to tell trans people to hide their histories from people, not tell people they were transsexual or transgender. And that would discourage us from forming communities, from forming our own spaces. And of course, with the internet, you have this way that people can connect with each other, but also keep a level of anonymity. And that really helped us build more of a culture and a present and a future. Then that let us build a history and then look back and find these people from before the 1990s. 
course, when you look for them, there are many other examples of transgender lives being lived in the past. And so to our next guest, Alison Oram, an academic who's passionate about discovering previously untold queer stories from 20th century Britain. Alison is a senior research fellow at the Institute for Historical Research in London and has written several books, including Her Husband Was a Woman, Women's Gender Crossing and Modern British Popular Culture. In this book, she tracks the changing representation of gender crossing in the press, exposing real-life case studies from the British tabloids of women who successfully passed as men in everyday life, perhaps marrying other women or fighting for their country. But crucially, you know, the period that I was looking at in that research was before identity. So it's before trans identity, it's before lesbian identity, identity strictly speaking, as well, and before gay identity. So although queer, of course, is also a, a modern <laughs> concept, it's also quite a useful umbrella term for looking at non-conforming genders and sexualities. Yeah, because you're, you're writing about a period, aren't you, where scientists, people we would call sexologists, people studying sex and sexuality and gender, were just starting really to do the work of separating gender identity and sexuality and the first transsexual people were emerging in this, this time as well. Yes. I mean, I suppose what I was looking for was, in a way, the anti-history of that sexology and psychiatry and medicalization. So medical doctors and psychiatrists and psychoanalysts were kind of trying to create these classifications of people. But those discussions were going on at a sort of relatively rarefied level. You'd have to be quite educated. You'd probably have to know about what was going on on the continent to really access those debates. And I kind of didn't really see from the work I'd done that they really had cut through at all to popular understandings. And so that's what I wanted to look at. I was looking, wanted to look at the everyday working class, lower middle class experiences, what kinds of literatures they read. Certainly in the book, Her Husband Was a Woman, that's what I was looking at. So how challenging was it to identify trans stories or kind of proto-trans stories, I guess, in the archives that you were looking at? When the research for Her Husband Was a Woman was carried out, oh, I think around, well, around 20 years ago, it was before newspapers were digitalised. So there we were at the British Library in Collindale, as it then was, looking through all these um, microfilms of the Sunday newspapers. I chose the News of the World and the People because they were the most widely read Sunday newspapers. And we know that those Sunday papers picked up interesting stories from the daily press and the regional press. You get to know, for example, that the human interest stories are going to come on page 10 or page 12 or something, and then the reviews of the music hall male impersonators are going to come on page 14 or whatever. And then you can sort of pick up these different stories. And although on one level it might be easier now that most newspapers or national newspapers are digitalised, that still raises the question about what terms are you looking for? Are you looking for terms like masquerading or female husbands? But do you, how do you even know that masquerading is the term that was used until you've kind of got down into the archives and looked at every, or at least at a lot of copies? <laughs> It wasn't just mainstream papers that were covering these issues. One fascinating object in the Unfinished Business exhibition is a magazine called Urania. It was a groundbreaking feminist journal set up by Eva Gore Booth and Irene Clyde. Mm -hmm. 
It was published between 1916 and 1940 and sold by subscription, and it explored the idea that sex was less fixed than it was widely believed at the time. Its strapline was, there are no men and women in Urania, and it was truly pioneering. Alison can tell us more. What they were emphasising was what we might today call, call gender fluidity. They believed that sex and gender were not fixed and they kind of republished, they picked up stories from all over the world. The main editor, um, Irene Clyde, I think definitely Irene Clyde would definitely identify themselves as a trans woman today, but as Thomas Beatty, she lived and worked in Japan as a legal scholar. And so there's a lot of material there, English language material, from the kind of English language press in Japan and the East, as well as stories from Europe and Britain. A lot of it was very straightforward, kind of celebrating women's achievements in the arts and the professions and in sport, you know, first woman, racing driver, etc., etc. But they also published lots of stories about cross-dressing, female husbands, change of sex, marriage refusal. They had a column called Engagements Dissolved, which is fantastic, you know, <laughs> rather than... Because, of course, the establishment <laughs> press at the time would have had, you know, the engagement of so-and-so is announced to blah, blah. So Urania kind of stands apart, really. In the exhibition, we're displaying an edition of Urania featuring an article about Mark Weston, an intersex person assigned female at birth. Mark Weston represented Britain in the 1926 Women's World Games for javelin, shot put and discus. In 1936, Weston had sex reassignment surgery and became Mark. Juliet was particularly interested in this case and the way it was covered in the magazine. The coverage in Urania is very matter-of-fact. They don't clearly know all of the details of the surgery and how it worked, but they're, they're very interested in covering it in this very scientific and very kind of sober and non-judgmental way. And as somebody who grew up with, you know, tabloid newspapers covering trans and non-binary and gender non-conforming people in this really lurid and sensationalistic way, but the coverage of Mark Weston is very, very different to that. It's very restrained and it's very, you know, intelligent. How did that coverage strike you when you first read it? Like, what were your immediate reactions to it? Well, I think what Urania is doing with that story and with many others is they are sort of taking them from the contemporary press. The Urania editors are not writing that story themselves. But those stories of, you know, what was called sex change in the popular press that start to become a bit more common in the 1930s, including the story of Mark Weston, which was certainly covered in the News of the World. I mean, they sort of become a kind of subgenre of the passing woman, the, the masquerading story. So in a way, the popular press sort of presents the idea that you can change sex. And actually what struck me about those stories is they are quite sympathetic that at least in you know the news of the world and the Sunday papers, they are quite sympathetic to the person whose story they're telling, but they're less kind of positive, or at least the gender crosser has less agency and less power than they do in the the masquerading stories where they are adopting masculine clothing and passing as men. 
And the story is told, you know, the, I mean, let's say Mary Weston, for example, he says that they felt something was wrong. And so they eventually sought medical help and, you know, was restored to his true sex and gender as Mark Weston. So it's about scientific modernity, really, that now medicine can do these things. And I think it's really important in that it kind of puts the idea of sex change out there. So what do you think studying the past through this like lesbian and trans lens tells us now? You know, are there any implications for how we understand the past and indeed how that changed our understanding of the present and how we got to present day like trans and non-binary identities? I think that you know, doing queer history like this shows us what the alternative histories are. And not only that they're kind of broader than identity labels of today, which after all, you know, those are historic constructs, our current identity labels. But I think also, I think that queer histories can also show us the kinds of alternative positive histories that are kind of almost just sort of behind the door, really. And I think that the sort of celebratory and sympathetic and positive representations of both of the sort of sex change stories, but also in inverted commas, but also the masquerading stories, which had a really strong crossover with gender impersonation on the stage, which, you know, was was a massively kind of widespread and popular entertainment. But, you know, these female husbands, these masqueraders, you know, were quite powerful figures. They were eroticised, they were sexy. So although there was humour, it wasn't at their expense, at least not until the 1940s and 50s. So I think finding those kind of alternative more powerful stories of ways of being in the world, that's what I would emphasise about the sort of queer histories that I've just been talking about. So from early representation in the press to trans communities demanding their voices are heard and rights respected, we're moving to the early 2000s and there is one woman I knew we had to speak to, political activist and pioneer Christine Burns, MBE. Christine started her life working as an IT consultant, but her urge to bring the trans community together would go on to change trans lives across the country. In 1992, Press for Change was set up as a lobbying and legal support organisation for trans people in the UK. At this time, Christine was quietly getting on with her IT job while also working as a secretary of her local Conservative Party branch. But in 1993, she joined Press for Change and then, in 1995, made her transsexual background public. Christine had decided enough was enough. Everything was against us. The press was against us. Uh, we wouldn't be able to find MPs to support us. There was no way of actually getting anybody to seriously hear the disadvantages that we were experiencing. Everything that we were trying to campaign for had its grounding in fundamental human rights, the right to private life and correspondence, the right to marry and found a family. And all of our efforts to change our position in society were based on claiming our right as humans to those fundamental rights that are accepted for everybody else. I have always been very interested in the way that the internet 
fundamentally change the nature of community and organising for trans people. But you were involved in setting up Press for Change's website in the early 90s. And I wondered if you could talk about how you thought about the potential of the internet for trans people at that time. Yes, again, it was pretty fundamental. I discovered early on the availability of commercial email services. I had as much conversation going on with people in Australia and across Europe and across the United States as I did you know, three miles down the road in uh, in Manchester. So that was transformative. But But beyond that, the World Wide Web, which sort of started to emerge as a, as a public possibility around about 1993, also solved an enormous problem for us. I was of the view that if we build it, they will come. So I started to build a website and just provided a little bit of information because I realized that the thing that had begun to light the fire in me as an activist was to learning about, about things that I had never known before. Because if you were trans in those days, in the 1980s and 1970s, it was impossible to know anything, any view about yourself other than what you read in the Sunday tabloids or maybe what you heard from a clinician. So Press for Change, of course, is best known for getting the Gender Recognition Act passed in 2004. So could you talk about the campaigning involved in getting this legislation passed? Yes, changing the law in terms of legal recognition was our goal. If you cannot be recognised for who you are in society, then all sorts of things that you never dream of can go wrong with, for you. For instance, there were terrible horror stories of people who, trans people who died and because they, are, they were legally regarded as the gender of their birth, had to have their death certificate written in terms of their birth name and their birth gender, even if their relatives didn't want that to happen. And the consequence that goes from that then is that uh, probably you don't realise unless you've ever had to bury somebody, that the what is written on the headstone also has to concur with what's on the death certificate. So people were getting erased. And I can think of nothing worse when you've, when you've spent your entire life, you know, uh, fighting to be recognised as who you are, to actually, you know, have that indignity after, after you're dead. But there were so many other, other areas. So for younger people, for instance, it was incredibly difficult for people to change their degree certificates. So, you know, you, you had a choice. Either, you know, carry these documents around which will out you, or that you actually have to forego the qualifications that you worked for and take a less, lesser job. You know, it, it may sound trivial to say, yeah, we were campaigning to be able to change our birth certificates because you, you think, well, how often do I need to take my birth certificate out? You know, uh, in those days, it was even less. I mean, now, because we're so security conscious, you can't apply for anything without having you know, at least two forms of official identity. And to get the second one, you need the first. So it's so difficult to live without such fundamentals. So yeah, what we were trying to do all along was to batter our way very politely into the places where decisions are made. One of the things that facilitated that was to win 
uh, crucial cases. So for instance, in the mid 90s, we won our first case in the European Court of Justice, which confirmed that trans people uh, had as much right to employment protection as everybody else. Everybody else had had employment protection since 1975 with the Sex Discrimination Act, but trans people, through some very uh, slippery arguing by lawyers over the years, had been denied that right. So even though I was a pretty secure as a, as a professional, I could have been uh, sacked by an employer at any time. So you know, winning a case like that was absolutely crucial. And then the next thing that's opened up by that is the opportunity to talk to officials and then to ministers uh, around a table. And actually, you know, to, it was quite an ambition to, to put ourselves in front of those kinds of decision makers so they could see us and they could hear us. And we weren't just these monsters portrayed by the Sunday press, that we were people just like themselves. We could argue the backside of a donkey as well as anybody else. So it was quite a long trek, I suppose about nine years from that first legal success to get to the point where we were collaborating in great detail with officials and ministers when they were finally required to produce a Gender Recognition Act. The Gender Recognition Act of 2004. It was a huge deal. It allowed people who have gender dysphoria to change their legal gender. Gender dysphoria means that someone feels that there's a mismatch between their gender identity and the sex that they were assigned at birth. And as Christine really emphasised earlier, the Gender Recognition Act was life-changing. But it didn't go far enough. We didn't get everything we wanted. Some of the things that people campaign for now to reform the Gender Recognition Act are things that we asked for at the time. And what we achieved anyway in 2004 was regarded widely as being the most advanced legal recognition legislation anywhere in the world at the time. And she was rewarded for this as part of our exhibition demonstrates. I want to talk about one of the items that's in the British Library collection here, which is the letter you got from Alex Allen from the Department of Constitutional Affairs, their permanent secretary, congratulating you on being awarded the MBE. And can we just talk very briefly about how it felt to get that letter? Well, I can take you back a few, uh, about six weeks earlier than that, when a letter came through the letterbox from 10 Downing Street. And by that point, I was I get, I'm quite used to getting uh, envelopes with portcullises on. So I, I just thought, oh, I don't know what this is. And I, I actually had an armful of washing. I'd just come down the stairs and I was starting to stick dirty knickers in the, <laughs> in the washing machine. And I opened this envelope and I just, it was one of those moments I, I, I can never forget. And I was just shivering there and I burst into tears because it was... I suppose, a, a real acknowledgement of the importance of what we'd achieved. We'd set something off in the trans community because we knew that creating the Gender Recognition Act had changed us. It had actually said to us directly, you know, you are legitimate.
As Christine touched on, although the act was groundbreaking, many didn't feel it went far enough. And so, ever since then, campaigners have been fighting for further reforms. And in September last year, the government published their response to a public consultation on this issue. Essentially, they agreed to modernise the legal process of changing gender, to reduce the application fee for a gender recognition certificate, and to take action to ensure transgender people can access the healthcare they need. Campaigners argue, however, that these changes still don't go far enough, arguing that the process needs to be demedicalised and legal recognition needs to be extended to non-binary people and under-18s. Of course, legal representation is completely essential, but in this exploration of how trans lives have been documented and depicted, Juliet and I were really interested to hear from a creative trans woman writing and expressing herself today. Meet Kuchenga, a writer and journalist whose work has been published in a whole host of magazines and papers, including Vogue, Harper's Bazaar, Galdem and more. Kuchenga, it's, it's lovely to meet you. You've been on my radar for a while. I'm interested in your path to becoming a writer as much as, as your gender. So mm -hmm. maybe we could talk a bit more about your own biography and how that led you into the type of writing that you do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I'm from North London. I'm um, Jamaican and Zimbabwean. Yeah, my father and mother met at Brixton Law Centre. And yeah, we had an extensive library to go along with that. So um, I was reading from a very young age, voraciously. Unfortunately, when I came out, I was made homeless and the spiral that happened after that really traumatic um, experience of rejection meant that I yeah, developed a, a serious drug and alcohol issue and ended up in rehab at the age of 28, basically no more than a few years away from my own death. And um, yeah, after having been sober for the first time in 12 years, I found myself writing yeah, just voracious. I just couldn't stop writing. And I took a whole load of books into rehab with me. <laughs> it was kind of like Donatella Versace at um, London Waterloo. I had like so much luggage. You've described yourself elsewhere as an avid reader of black women's literature as a matter of survival. Mm. And your writing, you know, often alludes to role models or sources of inspiration from the past. So people like the American novelist, Toni Morrison, who sadly mm. died recently, or going back further, someone like Langston Hughes, like an early 20th century African-American poet and gay man. But what about like finding your way to trans people of colour, past and present? For me, reading black women's literature assuaged my dysphoria. I didn't feel as far removed as I was being told that I was. Like, when I'm reading Toni Morrison or Alice Walker or Maya Angelou, those stories were for me. Even though they were black cisgender women's stories, I was still able to identify really closely with what they were experiencing. And I didn't come across black trans women until Janet Mark, to be honest. 
Just to jump in here quickly, Janet Mock is an American writer, television host, and transgender rights activist. Her debut book, the memoir Redefining Realness, became a New York Times bestseller. She was the very first black trans woman I'd ever come across in popular culture who was able to describe precisely what it was like to grow up as a black trans child. Yeah, I mean, Janet Mock and Laverne Cox both had a really important media moment around about 2013, 2014. Mm. Of course, Laverne mm. Cox was on the cover of Time magazine with their famous transgender tipping point article in, in May 2014. And the two of them, I really thought at the time and retroactively, did mm. an incredible job of going on to mainstream television in particular and explaining to people who were either accidentally or often quite willfully ignorant about trans issues and about how they intersected with issues around mm. race and racism. Yeah, I mean, they're so essential to have such strong intellectual voices. They're also really beautiful. And, you know, they're really possible. I think that always matters when we're looking at, yeah, trans women in the public eye. Um, we are under the same stresses, like we have to be um, engaging and sexually alluring and not too much, you know, vaguely demure. And yeah, I was also, like growing up, I was very much pulled towards adoring the transsexual glamazon. You know, when I'm thinking of, say, Caroline Cossey and um, Tracy Africa, and in a different way, Nadia Almada from Big Brother. I was always very conscious that they had, um, you know, glowing golden skin and flowing hair, and they were just so lithe and sexual. So I was very much attracted to them, but with um, Janet and Laverne in particular, it felt like I was encouraged to be more, um, to question whether the last stop on one's transition of becoming a successful transsexual woman is to, you know, be as alluring as possible and find a straight guy to shack up with in the country and not talk that much anymore, do you know what I mean? Don't rock the boat, you know, you know you're a woman now. Um, so there was an expansion that happened. There was this call for visibility. I've struggled with that, to be honest. I feel because of the anti-trans backlash, it felt like the clearly defined path that, um, you know, trans medicalist doctors had, you know, like be as feminine as possible, you know, change your name, move away. That no longer being the encouraged path means that I felt more vulnerable at that moment and definitely since that to be a visible, openly, transgender woman is rough and dangerous. You know, just to fight when leaving the door, that period for me in early transition when I was still visibly transgender was just so harrowing and to get received the worst that society has to offer. And although Kachenga has written about her struggles in her work, she's also penned pieces about film, loneliness and art, a whole host of subjects. I find it awkward when I'm only framed as like a transgender rights activist and stuff. Like I'm, I'm a black trans woman and I'm black feminist at that. So I have to 
speak about all of these things concurrently and I'm in a really impossible position where I have to do a lot of work behind the scenes or not take part in things publicly because it's not safe for me to do so. Yeah, and you've hit on an interesting tension, I think, for people from minority backgrounds who want to write and do creative work, because I think there is, you know, on one side, often this frustration with being typecast and this sense of, you know, why am I being defined purely by the minority group that I come from? And then on the other side, you have this feeling of like, well, look, actually, the situation is really bad, and I have the talent but also the personal knowledge and connections to put my writing or my creative work at the service of trying to improve this situation. I really struggled because I felt that I just wanted to be a writer. You know, I want to write about sci-fi, I've just written a love story and I want the freedom to encourage my imagination. I. Yeah, I just felt really hemmed in by my identity in that regard. However, <laughs> I also, you know, I'm always extolling the virtues of writers of the past who have chronicled their times. And, you know, Nina Simone says that that's the artist's job. I have a responsibility. I'm a black trans woman living in 2020. If something's happening to women who look like me and have lived lives like me. I need to talk about it. I need to write about it. So you were lucky enough to grow up in a house full of books and, you know, books by women of colour at that. But nonetheless, what advice would you give to your 15-year-old self, looking back? Preparing to jump off of the cliff, that, that fear that one experiences um, beforehand that there's nothing wrong with having those fears. And I say this for all trans women who spend years wondering if they're strong enough, wondering if they'll be safe, wondering if they'll be loved, wondering if they'll lose their families or ever find a job again. That the evidence that you receive dissuading you from doing what you need to do in order to remain alive and live a happy, um, successful life, that that is willful and that you, that we're stronger than we can ever imagine. And we receive such severe messages that our lives aren't worth living. And yet we're still fucking here. Um, that's not my own phrase, that's Miss Major, um, a documentary that everyone needs to watch, um, Major. Yeah, and you're right, we're absolutely still fucking here. Um, <laughs> Kachenga, it's been a real pleasure to meet you and Such talk a to joy. you. Um, thanks so much for joining me. Take care. Thank you, Juliet. Thank you. So after hearing from all of our guests and finding out about so many fascinating lives from the past, I wanted to hear Juliet's final reflections. I think what I've seen through these interviews is a sort of proliferation of trans identities, a kind of opening out of trans identities, more possibilities becoming open to people and different focuses. I mean, in the 20s and 30s, there's a really strong focus on just people being understood and the ways in which they're understood. So there's some thinking about the media, but also about courts and the law. In the 80s and 90s, you know, into the 2000s that we talked to Christine about, 
there's a very, very strong focus on the law itself, very, very strong focus on changing the law. And then when we talked to Kachenga, Kachenga and I focused quite a lot on cultural representation of bringing trans subjects into wider consciousness in more creative and interesting and inventive ways, I think. How do you account for the increase in transphobia in the last three years? And do you think it's related to the gains and successes and achievements that kind of have preceded that, that it's a kind of pendulum swing? Yeah, I mean, these, this thing is always a two-way process. And, you know, the way history works is that you have victories and defeats and you often have to fight the same battles over and over again. Often each generation has to fight the same battles. I can't remember who it was who said the very famous line, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. And we were ignored for a long time, really, and but much more often historically we were laughed at. I mean, you know, they've been fighting us all the while as well, so these things have all been going on at the same time, but they're fighting us very, very, very hard at the moment. And I do think eventually we will win. I mean, a lot of the transphobic media coverage at the moment looks to me very, very similar to the coverage of gay and lesbian people in the 1980s. But that then, you know, the pendulum does swing the other way and it has the effect of galvanising a counter movement against that prejudice. And, you know, I think eventually, you know, it might take another 20 or 30 years, but I think eventually this will change. We've looked at several historical objects, artefacts, which we're including in the exhibition. And I wondered what artefacts or objects would you hope that we might be looking at 20 years hence that we might be archiving? I would hope that we would be archiving items that spoke to a more diverse culture around trans and non-binaries. Plays, poetry, novels, feature films, music by trans and non-binary people. Yeah, maybe even some of my work, who knows? I can guarantee you, you're definitely being archived at the British Library. I can guarantee you that. Yeah, I, I would hope for more creative work and maybe for work that trans and non-binary people are doing that isn't just about our gender identities. Yeah, but couldn't agree more. And that it would become just the norm. And just part of the texture of everyday life. I remember having a really striking moment a few years ago of just like watching BBC News. They were talking about some sort of archaeological find, I think, you know, some dinosaur bones or something. And they got on a consultant to talk to about this discovery. And I read the contributor as trans. But, you know, she wasn't there to just sort of say, this is my journey, this is my story. She was saying, look, you know, these dinosaur bones have been found, here's why it's significant. And then that was it, and the fact of, of her being trans wasn't mentioned, and that's how it should be, really. I'm Polly Russell, and you've been listening to Unfinished Business, a PixU production for the British Library. For any more information on anything we've been speaking about in today's episode, head to the British Library's website. And if you're affected by any of the issues raised on today's podcast, search Stonewall online. Stonewall.